This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is brought to you by Hulu Plus. Watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere with Hulu Plus on your TV or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. Shows like Cosmos, Modern Family, The Mindy Project, and more. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com slash fighting. That's HuluPlus.com slash fighting. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, August 28th, the It Costs How Much edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 5, Sam 3, and Wally 1. My co-host, Dan Coyce, is off this week, uh, most likely committing spectacular fails and triumphs on his family vacation all over North Carolina. Look for his failures. Call in if you see any. Uh, But don't worry. I will not just talk to myself for the next 40 minutes. I'll be joined by two black parents, Stacia Brown and Dwayne Betts, to hear about how they talk to their kids about Ferguson and racism in America. Then Slate's business and technology editor, Jessica Winter, will help me come to terms with the latest stats on how much it costs to raise a child. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a listener call about sleepovers. First, a little bit of business. Reminders, please subscribe to Mom and Dad Are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please keep spreading the word. Dan and I are so lucky to have such awesome listeners all around the world. Um, We've been getting letters recently that's made me realize we have like this international fan base. Uh, But we love getting your emails, your calls, and your tweets, and we want more and more and more of you. So really, tell people, even people who aren't parents, because it turns out a lot of you who listen uh, don't have kids, which is weird and cool. (laughs) Um, Also, please sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's great membership plan where you get extra podcast segments and really cool exclusive stuff, like recently John Dickerson on video talking about what he does all day, and uh, a bunch of really moving photographs Slate writer Jamel Bowie took while reporting from Ferguson. So go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. And one more thing, I know you're sick of hearing just my voice, but last episode I asked you to email me if you played Rummy Cube growing up, and if so, if you're Jewish. Because I thought maybe this was a game mostly played by Jews like me. And it turns out that pretty much all of you play or played Rummy Cube. I mean, I, this is the the most tremendous response I've ever gotten, I think, was about Rummy Cube. Um, that none of you are Jewish. And that some of you pronounce it Rummy Cube or Rummy Cub, both of which are wrong and weird. Don't do that. But the massive Rummy Cube response has inspired me to bring the game to our upcoming Slate Retreat, where I will force Dan to play with me and crush him, and I will report back on that. Okay, on to triumphs and fails. As a special treat, Slate's political editor, Will Dobson, is joining me from D.C. Will usually makes guest appearances on the Political Gab Fest to talk about what's happening in Syria or Russia, but today he is here to talk about a diplomatic failure in his own house. Will, what happened? It was a crisis. Um, We've been, in the last few days, we've been experiencing something at our house, which I would call, um, I guess, tooth fairy envy. So as background, uh, my wife and I have uh, two kids, Kate, who's five, and Liam, who is three. Um, And we're at that point now where Kate is starting to lose teeth. And that was all fine and good because, well, Liam is fascinated and about most things that is going on in Kate's life. The problem came this summer when uh, Kate has lost four teeth in four months. Four months, um, And so just a couple of days ago, we found out that the fourth 
tooth was coming out and then was out, which then set Liam into sort of a bit of hysterics because with each tooth, Kate has been getting more and more of a, of a haul of, uh, of, of these little $1 coins that we've been giving, giving her. And the fourth one was basically the one that Liam couldn't take because he was just, the jealousy was just too much. Um, and and the, the you know the immediate thing was we were trying to figure out like what do you do I mean how do we equal the score on some level you know it is Kate's you know it's Kate's day it's, they're her teeth and you know Liam will get his turn and we'd done that telling him that uh, for the first couple uh, teeth but you know it just it was obviously upsetting him and and so. Uh, we decided, you know, maybe, you know, what we'll do is t- tonight we'll, like, leave, you know, a-, a coin for Liam, too, and that will somehow, you know, help. And since Kate was feeling compassionate, maybe that would be okay. And, and so we did that, which was a totally idiotic thing to do. Um, <laughs> How did you explain why was you know, the coin every- there? Who, like, the Tooth Fairy was just, you know, feeling extra generous? Yeah, I mean, it was just under the theory that, like, Okay, you know, Kate seemed to be concerned about it, and you know, I mean, there's no, there's no logical defense for it. No, no, no. But I'm saying, how did you explain it to Liam? Well, you know, it was, you know, we were going to say that, you know, oh, you know, the the tooth fairy, you know, was concerned about equity and parity, and you know, she was thinking of you too. And I mean, it just, it was like, it was a moment of weakness, you know. It was like, it was, you know, it was the biggest mistake that we make in our house is typically sort of like jumping for trying to make things. Fair when actually that's just going to compound the problem and make things worse. And you're just better off dealing with that kid and having him learn the lesson that, you know, sometimes you have to wait for things. So, because predictably the next morning when Liam came downstairs thrilled with his own shiny, you know, shiny $1 coin, uh, Kate was sent into hysterics because there was no justice in this. This is her tooth. It's her day. It's her moment. It doesn't matter that it's happened four times in a row. All the sort of logical, normal things that a kid should think and feel. Um, and so... This, of course, then sets us into sort of a spin. We're like trying to talk to each of them, trying to find a way to like bridge this. And then I sort of say, you know, okay, we need a note. <laughs> so basically what I did was I wrote a note that I then tucked under Liam's pillow, which we mysteriously all of a sudden found, which indicated it was a note from the Tooth Fairy to Liam saying that she understood that this was hard, and she had heard Kate saying that, that, you know, um, it would only be fair if uh, Liam got a coin, too, and this would help, and this and all. So I, I guess I'm calling this a fail and a triumph, because on the one hand, we totally screwed up. There's no question, like, our fingerprints are all over the disaster that this was. But the note totally worked, and Kate was like, see, Liam, you know, it was like, I was able to get this coin for you. This is, you know, because, you know, I said that, she heard me. And so it was sort of, it bridged the divide, and... and we will never do that again. All right. Well, that's you're crafting it as both a triumph and a fail. I'm gonna, as the parenting expert on the show and the and the real host, I'm gonna call it a fail. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Just that's a straight fair. fail. Uh, okay. I have an exciting triumph. Uh, I know fails are usually more fun than than triumphs, but my two older kids, Harry and Sam, were not big bath peers. They did not urinate much in the bath, or at least not where I could, when I could see it. I'm sure when they were sitting, they did, but not standing up. But Wally is just on a roll every night. We run the bath. He gets in the bath. He's sitting in the bath. He stands up. He pees in the bath. You drain the bath. Our bath. I feel like our drain is really slow. It takes forever, and then you rerun the bath. My triumph is that last week, I decided to ask Slate 
science editor, Laura Helmuth, and also sleep urination expert, yeah. Laura Helmuth. <laughs> Do I thing. need to drain the bath every night? And the answer is no. And so no, Wally is bathing in his own urination and will be doing so until he can learn to control himself. Triumph. <laughs> I mean, this is like this is this is like one of Laura Helmuth's subspecialties. So, I mean, she was the one who said that what was it, Seattle or Portland that didn't they didn't need to like you know drain the reservoir? Exactly. And they, didn't, they didn't drain the reservoir in the end, so they sort of took her advice then. Um, it's a smaller body of water, but I think Laura, she's done the math. He's a smaller person, so yeah, there you go. That's okay, you go. great. Will, thanks. Thank you. Last week, in an outpouring of reporting and essays and grief over the shooting of Michael Brown by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, writer B. John Steffen wrote on Medium about the talk, the talk that so many black parents give to their sons to prepare them for life in America. The next day, Gawker ran a piece headlined, What Black Parents Tell Their Sons About the Police, in which Jasmine Hughes writes, Being a black parent, especially of a black boy, comes with the added onus of having to protect your child from a country that is out to get him. This fear, she writes, has fueled a generational need for a pretentious, culturally compulsory lecture that warns young black men about the inherent strikes against them, about the society that is built to bring them down. To talk more about this talk and more generally about how they as parents prepare their children for the realities of racism in America and also how they talked about Ferguson with their children, I'm joined by freelance writer and mother Stacia Brown and Dwayne Betts, author of the memoir, A Question of Freedom, and student at Yale Law School. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dwayne, did your own parents give you this talk when you were young? Is it something you're familiar with? And and do you remember how old you were and what its effect was? Um, So I partly feel like this is not necessarily a popular answer, but it's a true answer, which is to say my parents didn't give me that talk at all. And it's not that I wasn't aware of the police. I think um, the police in Prince George's County, Maryland, were notorious for um, police brutality. But honestly, it's just not a conversation I had with my mom. And I don't want to say that it's become part of, like, some larger mythology, but I think telling a narrative and a story about these lessons that some people explicitly get is is, is kind of just a way to let the world know how painful it is. I don't think it's necessarily suggesting that... um that every young black man in America hears that story because I just didn't. (laughs) You know, the lessons that we got came from having people who were beat up by the police. I think the lessons we got came from seeing people around us who, you know, were locked up for something that they may or may not have done. I think we lived in the Terror Dome, so we didn't need a story to tell us about what the Terror Dome looked like. Do you feel like you'll be telling a story to your sons? I think I will be telling a story to my son. I don't necessarily think I'll be telling that story. I think... The story I tell my son to be a little bit more complicated, and it'll just be complicated by my own history. I've already had to have conversations with my son about, you know, incarceration, prison. So, yeah, so I don't think I'll be telling him that story in particular, like how to handle himself around police, because I'm just be real. I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, for the last four or five years, I've lived in New England, and I've been in Massachusetts when I had this fellowship at Harvard, and then I've been out here as a student at Yale, and I just recognize that, the life my child leads is, is sort of different from the life that I led as a kid. And so I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to act as if experience is equal all across the board. I want my son to, to know that experience isn't equal and to have a, a, a bigger burden based on the fact that, you know, some of the fears 
that I might have if I was raising my son in the same neighborhood that I grew up in, I frankly just don't have right now. Yeah. Stacia, your daughter's story is just four, so you, you haven't talked to her about Ferguson, but you told me you've been preparing for, I don't know, a future Ferguson or just this having these talks with her. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, um, I have just a running, on my, on my blog I write second-person essays to my daughter about current events and about different things that I want to remember to tell her later. So as I'm experiencing things like Ferguson... I'm trying to remember what it is that I want to impart to her about it when she's old enough to ask. Like, I think this is going to be a landmark moment in history, and, you know, kids will will try to... It's part of a, a larger, obviously, a larger string of lost lives at the hands of the police that have been, you know, nationally discussed, publicized, reported. So, so I'm trying to write down my own experiences of it in the moment so that I'll remember what's most important for me to impart to her about this. What do you think having a daughter is there are there different are there different things you want to impart to her that I mean a lot of the quotes that I was reading and a lot of the coverage you know obviously of Ferguson and of Tra- Trayvon Martin shooting is about you know what it's like for black boys and young black men in this country but but you have a daughter and you grew up <laughs> obviously as a young black woman is there is there a different set of things that you feel as a mother you want to tell your daughter I don't know that there's a different set of things. For a while, my stepfather was a police officer in Baltimore County, and he used to tell my mother when she first started to drive, if the police stop you, do exactly what they say. So he didn't say, he never said anything to me about, you know, they're going to harass you or, you know, you have to do this when they stop you or anything. I've never had an encounter with police aside from him, you know, like off duty. I don't know that I'll. I'll explicitly, just like Dwayne, I don't, I don't know that I'll explicitly tell her, you know, keep your hands visible at all times, hands up, don't shoot, and all that. I may, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that I will explicitly. I just know that I would definitely want to tell her not to challenge the police too much, like make sure that you're getting their badge and ID number and stuff like that if you get stopped, but don't like, you know, be particularly confrontational because even if it doesn't, I mean, even, even if being polite doesn't mean anything, and, you know, history shows that it doesn't, I would prefer if she aired on the side of caution. See, that's, I, see, I, I kind of think that's interesting because, one, I think that, that I guess one of the things I was trying to suggest is um, a friend of mine wrote a blog, her name is Honoré Jeffers, but she wrote a blog about the sort of, not privilege, but the sort of differences between, like, black folks of different classes, and, and I guess that's some of what I was getting at. But I think one of the differences is that like I could imagine having these kind of discussions with my son, and I could imagine Ferguson as a as a moment that changes something in America. But people would have said the same thing about Rodney King, and I know that I never had a discussion about Rodney King. And I remember being in school when it happened, and I remember say, you know, nobody talking to us about what it meant. I remember my family members not really talking to us about it, and and I know that we were aware of it, but it really wasn't this moment that crystallized anything. And so in some ways I wonder, like, what would I tell my son? And I, I kind of hope that I'll figure out a way to let him know that, look, our role as citizens is not to just let the police do whatever they want. And I hope that at the point when he's 15 or 16, we will have developed some kind of mechanisms to hold the police accountable and expect a better police force. Because, you know, frankly, I just don't want my son to grow up in a world in which when he becomes independently more aware of these things, he becomes aware of him as if he's a target. You know, the worst thing I've ever heard is the black man is an endangered species. 
it's just like I'm not an endangered species. I'm a human being, and I'm just not willing to to hazard that metaphor. You know, I would rather do more work um, in my own life and in the way I raise my son to make him know that that's not acceptable, and that's not even an acceptable discourse for him to engage in. When you say, like, after Rodney King, you don't remember having these, this conversation with your parents or asking, I guess, not asking them questions. I mean, do you wish that you would have? Like, did you have questions? Did you feel like, you know, you, you wanted to talk to someone, whether it was a parent or a parental figure? Yeah, so part of it, I mean, I think that's what I mean about sort of the, the, maybe the privilege of a, a different level of education in which, you know, you think about these things more than just the context of survival but the context of history. Yeah. And so in some ways, I, I do wish I would have had those conversations with my mom, but, but not, not to the extent that I'm having the conversations about how to manage my relationship with the police, but to the extent that I was having a conversation with my mom about what it meant to be politicized and to be a citizen of the world. Because, you know, I was doing a whole lot of stuff when I was that age that I shouldn't have been doing anyway. And I think those conversations might have helped me you know, have some context to some of the mistakes I was already making in my life. So when I had those conversations with my son, I hope that, you know, they function to help him think about the world that he lives in, but also to empower him to do some things about the world as opposed to just, you know, I'm just not writing a survival manual. I I get why other people want to write survival manuals, but I am not writing a survival manual. Well, I was going to say that I think a part of... um of freedom, of, of raising a free child, like raising a, per, a citizen who feels that they're part of a democratic process is to, you know, empower them within, with the consciousness of their rights, you know. So when you tell people that they have to behave in a certain way at all times and it doesn't ensure any, it's, it's very fatalistic to raise your child that way, like to say, right. you know, you're a target and you could die and all this stuff like that. And, I mean, I don't want to minimize that because it's true. I mean, that's something that does happen. But it doesn't happen to every child, you know. And I don't think that, I think Dwayne's right that you shouldn't necessarily raise your child with the expectation that they're going to have negative experiences with the police or that they're going to live this embattled, violent life and they have to be, you know, vigilant about it like they're soldiers or something like that. They aren't. They're just, they're children and they need to know that they can walk through the world as free citizens and they have the right to do that. They don't have to power they don't have to you know prepare themselves in in every situation to be discriminated against like aside you know moving aside from police brutality this goes into into school settings the conversations that i've heard other parents have with their kids about school and how black kids are targeted and that they are you know suspended at a higher rate and all this stuff like that you don't tell your kids that kind of stuff explicitly because it, it sets them up to have to go, enter every situation feeling like they're at a disadvantage and I don't think that they need to, even if as a parent you kind of feel that tension, I don't think that you need to, in every case, impart that to your children. And you want your kids to think, like all kids, that anything is possible, that their future is bright, <laughs> which it is. Yeah, though I probably sadly have to tell them anything is possible, also tragic murders. But, but that's the world, too. You know, everybody should know that, that anything is possible, and that includes a bright future and... You know, irresponsible police. If you, if you don't if you don't do something about it, do you teach your kids if they get lost in, in their neighborhood to go to a police officer for help? <laughs> I'm a less patient answer that. <laughs> I, again, I haven't had an opportunity to do that, but i i would I would imagine that I would probably say, yeah, find an authority figure. 
just because the relationship between children and the police, most of the time in my observation, and I'm, you know, by no means speaking for all communities and all police, but when a child is still, I would say maybe under the age of 10, maybe maybe older for girls, I don't know, but police, you're taught, like, there's officer-friendly at the school and stuff like that, and this is in city schools and county schools. I'm talking Baltimore talk right now, but, yeah, so it doesn't matter where you live. Like, there's a cop in there, and he's presented as a friendly person that's supposed to help you, and that transitions over time, I think. Like, we become more suspicious of the police as we get older. In some neighborhoods, in some communities, maybe maybe there's a suspicion of the police from birth in some, in some families. I don't know, but... Yeah, so if she got lost and she was still pretty young, I'd tell her to go directly to a cop if she saw one. But if not, just <laughs> try to find an adult that owns a business or something like that. I wouldn't tell her the cops is the first option. But that's why I mean it's there. funny though because like so I I grew up in I grew up in D.C. and I grew up in sort of Prince George's County, Maryland, and police were everywhere. And I was the poster child for being a latchkey kid. I mean, when I was five, six, when I was in first grade, I had the key to my apartment. And I probably shouldn't say this. My mom might get upset. But when I was in first grade, you know, I remember just having a whole lot of responsibility and having a key to my apartment and letting myself in and out, going to school and coming back from school. And nobody ever told me to talk to the police if there was danger. And I don't think that people necessarily distrusted the police, but people didn't consider the police as as a part of the community necessarily. And then now I, I live in New Haven and well, my son is never outside of my sight, and so I just never had time to consider asking that question. I mean, when he is outside of my sight, he's with teachers. And so I actually never, I've never had that conversation with him, but I wonder what would I tell him. I mean, I wouldn't, but I wonder why I wouldn't. And I, and I guess, unfortunately, the reason why I wouldn't is because I'm still trapped in the same mindset that I grew up in, in which, you know, I generally don't, I still don't trust the police. So there are all question there are questions that all parents know they are at some point going to be asked that we sort of all dread like you know the where do babies come from is god real what happens after you die the kind of difficult questions that your kids ask you at random moments in the bath and we all write little scripts in our heads hoping to be able to explain death or religion or sex to our kids in a digestible way or at least I do <laughs> What are the questions you guys are preparing for that you think your children will ask or that you remember asking about racism or about being pla- black that, that won't be easy to answer like, like those other questions? Well, I mean, I think I already deal with it, or at least I've already dealt with it. I think it's probably just because of a bunch of trouble that I got in when I was younger. But I had one of my son's classmates. You know, I wrote a memoir, and the memoir was about me getting locked up when I was 16 and doing eight years in prison. And, um, and I had a, a couple you know, who had a son that went to school with my with my boy, and um, and we were friends, and they were just looking for stuff I wrote on the Internet, and I hadn't told them about the trouble I'd been in. And then they found it, and they were just sort of shocked because I think usually you don't have uh, Yale Law students who have, like, three felonies or whatever. And anyway, I think they were talking about me around their son, and so my their son went to school the next day and told my kid, you know, your dad went to jail for stealing a car. And it, it it blew my kid mind because the thing is, he's five. Well, he's six now, but he was five at the time. But, you know, he still lives in a world where bad guys go to jail and the police are friendly and people who you should trust. And, um, and that, you know, he doesn't have the sort of context to think about the nuance and that you could have done a terrible thing, but that not be the whole of your identity. And I remember having it sort of had that conversation with him because, you know, his school called me. And, um, and so when I came home, I had to have a conversation with him. 
But, you know, me personally, and this is why I think about Ferguson, too, you know, I think that I'm bound to have certain conversations with my son uh, frequently, but I feel like the life I live forces me to sort of try to have those conversations, you know, with some nuance. And, you know, it was hard because how do you explain to your kid that, that like, you know, you were the bad guy? And, and all of the all of the statistics about the disparities and racial and, and the disparities in contact with the police amongst minority, minorities and people of color, everything about mass incarceration and the new Jim Crow, you know, all of that aside, I robbed somebody and I pled guilty to it, which means that, you know, the conversations that I have with my son are much different. You know, it means that when I think about Ferguson, I'm thinking about when 20 police officers had guns pointed at me um, and what that meant to know that I'm, I might actually be shot by the police. And I haven't, like, fully figured it out, but what I have figured out is that, you know, certain conversations exist in certain households because they can't be avoided. And so in some ways I think some people feel like they can't avoid the survival story, that survival narrative. But I feel like my life has forced me to, to be like I can't afford I can't like I can't afford to um ignore some complex conversations. Even when my kid, you know, is is so young that I don't let him cut the stove on, I'm still already having conversations with him about the justice system and about, you know, responsibility and, and morals. And it's difficult because, honestly, you know, I imagine and hope that I live in a world like most of my kids' um, classmates in which, you know, they don't have to confront the same issues. But what I realize is everybody confronts some issues and you just you can't run from it. At least I can't run from it. Okay. Thank you guys so much. This was a really great conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you for having us. Okay, we have a great new advertiser this week that I'm very excited about because I love TV and I watch a lot of TV, which you might notice because I never recommend books. I always recommend television shows. Uh, You guys have to try Hulu Plus, the on-demand streaming video service. You've probably tried regular Hulu on your computer, but Hulu Plus is better and offers so much more. It works on your computer, but also on your smart TV, Roku, Apple TV, Xbox, and pretty much any streaming device that you already own. You can watch shows on your phone or your iPad, and you can watch them on your own schedule wherever you are, on the train, during your lunch break, or like Paul Rudd in This Is 40 on the toilet. That's where he goes to get some peace and quiet from his children and watches shows on his iPad. Uh, Hulu Plus has a great library of shows, including the entire current season of Inside Amy Schumer. And all of The Good Wife, which is the show I wish I watched and can now actually binge watch it and catch up. Hulu Plus also offers a ton of foreign shows, which is why Slate's June Thomas is a huge fan. She loves that British TV. And Hulu Plus has original programming, like The Hot Wives of Orlando, a parody of The Real Housewives starring Kristen Schaal and some other really funny women. But here is the best part. Kids' shows on Hulu Plus do not have any ads. So your kids can watch shows that my kids love, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Wild Kratts, and Power Rangers Super Megaforce. Uh, or maybe better shows because they have better taste than my kids, all without ads, all without anyone trying to sell them anything, which means a tiny bit less of them bugging you to buy them stuff. Hulu Plus is only $7.99 a month, but you guys, our listeners, can get a two-week free trial when you go to huluplus.com slash fighting. The regular trial is one week free, but this is an extra week just for being our awesome listeners. Please make sure you use huluplus.com slash fighting. That's H-U-L-U 
P-L-U-S dot com slash fighting so you can get an extended free trial and so they know that we sent you. It helps us keep the lights on and gives you a better deal. That's HuluPlus.com slash fighting. Okay, on to our listener call. So each week we take a call and question from a listener, and we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Ask us anything, and we will do our best to answer. Today we have a call from Diana in Williamsburg, Virginia. Hello, Mom and Dad. This is Diana from Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm calling because my oldest daughter, Harper, is turning six next month. And my husband and I are trying to determine our strategy for sleepovers. I generally hate the very idea. My memories of sleepovers never include sleep and all include teasing, someone crying, someone wetting the bed, parents getting called, and generally just crummy time. So now sleepover invites have started for Harper, and I don't know what to do. One strategy I've thought of is to only allow my daughter to be one of two kids, either at our house or at the other house. More than two kids seem to stack the odds in favor of disaster. Does that make any sense? Um, Then my other concerns are about her going over to unknown households. Should I only let her sleep over at homes where I have been to the home? Know the parenting styles, bedroom setups, other siblings, handgun policies? Um, I feel like I must be helicoptering. Am I? And do you have, you know, what have you guys done about sleepovers? Um, any advice? Be welcome. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Diana, yes. You are helicoptering, I believe. (laughs) That is the definition of helicoptering. I understand. I get it. But you're overthinking it, Diana. I think it was the Tiger Mom author who wouldn't let her daughters go on sleepovers. And you don't want to be that. I think, you know, every kid is different in terms of when they're ready. Uh, There was a 2011 piece in the New York Times by a pediatrician who basically says this, says like the American Pediatric Association doesn't give any rules for when kids are ready for sleepovers. And it's really, you know, dependent on your kid. But it sounds like I think it sounds like Harper wants to go. So my advice would be to let the first time happen soon uh, at a family's house that's close by. So it's no big deal if you get a call in the middle of the night to go pick her up. And a family who you know, I mean, I think it's probably going overboard to have to like to have gone over to their house already and see, you know, the configuration of the bedrooms. But certainly you want your daughter to go to a house where you trust the parents. But I think you want that for playdates and, you know, anything else, birthday parties, wherever you drop your daughter off. Uh, I don't think you have to, like, run a background check. But I think, like, the issue, you know, being nervous about no sleep, who cares? It's one night. She'll be cranky the next day. But the benefit is that you haven't had her all night in your house. You maybe, like, watched a movie or something or got a really great night's sleep so you can deal with her being cranky the next day. Wetting the bed, I mean, if she's a regular, if she regularly wets the bed, you could... Let those parents know and maybe send over a plastic, one of those plastic mattress pad things to put under the sheet that the other kids don't need to even know is there. The, you know, the the mom or, or dad at the house that you're sending her to can just put that on secretly. And as for teasing, I mean, sure, I guess if you get a bunch of girls in a room for a sleepover, someone's going to get teased. But that's also going to happen uh, on a play date or on the soccer field or anywhere else. So I don't think you can really avoid that, nor should you. It's something your daughter's going to have to learn to navigate. So I say go for it. You're being a little crazy. 
see how it goes. I have great fond memories of sleepovers when I was young. My best friend growing up could never make it through the night. She came and slept over and all the time, even when we were like way too old for this to be happening, her parents would have to come pick her up at two in the morning, but it didn't stop her from coming back and it didn't stop me from continuing to invite her. My son Harry has already gone in a couple of sleepovers, some that have actually finished, like he slept through the night there. And we actually got a break in the morning because he stayed for, you know, breakfast and hung out, which is really nice for us and for him. Uh, and somewhere we had to pick him up. I think it's a great, you know, it's a it's a totally fine thing to do. And you should do it. Go for it, Diana. Let us know how it goes. Okay, on to our next topic. Earlier this month, the Department of Agriculture released its latest report on how much it costs to raise children in America. Slate's business and technology editor and also pregnant person, Jessica Winter. Jessica Winter, who I did not name last week, but she was part of my recommendation because she's the one who let me see all of those adorable baby clothes um, that her mother passed on to her. Uh, Jessica Winter is here to run through the numbers with me, and I hope to not freak out that she's about to have a baby and thus can never retire. Hey, Jessica. Hi, Allison. I promise I won't freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... I read this report. I kind of glaze over when I read these numbers because it doesn't feel helpful to me to know how much I am in for. For some reason, it should. I should be, you know, sort of saving for it and thinking this is how much it's going to cost. But it kind of seems like it doesn't matter. I'm going to be shelling out no matter what. So tell me, highlight for me the most important or dire or maybe comforting numbers. Sure. So the headline number here is $245,000. If you are a two-parent household with two kids and your pre-tax income is somewhere between sixty dollars and $106,000, give or take, we can just call that a middle-income bracket, the USDA expects that the average you can expect to spend is about $245,000 on one of your kids uh, from birth through age 17. So that doesn't include pregnancy or college, sadly. Um, it's about $1,200 a month. For households making more than 106000 the average from birth through age 17 is 408000 per child, um, or about 2000 a month. But that, that's a somewhat less useful number because the spectrum of household incomes is so much wider in that bracket. Um, a really important thing to remember about these completely terrifying numbers is that they're all averages. It's not a median, it's an average. So at best, they're kind of a useful reference point on an enormous spectrum. So for instance, according to the USDA data, if you live in the urban south or in rural areas, you're going to be spending less overall than if you live in the northeast. Where we do. Where we do. (laughs) The more children you have, uh, this is good news for people with larger families, your per-child rate of spending is going to be lower because you can consolidate costs, you can shop for groceries in bulk, you can spend less on clothing with hand-me-downs, you can consolidate transportation costs, kids can share a room, on and on and on. So, um, you know, buy your kids in bulk is the lesson, <laughs> one of the many lessons of this report. The most alarming, dire development revealed in the report is how much the cost of raising a child has increased in the last 40 years. So in 1960, inflation-adjusted dollars for one of these middle-income households, the average price tag for a child was about 198000 and now it's two forty-five. So what happened? Well, food and clothing got cheaper, so that wasn't it. Healthcare costs doubled, not surprising, but they're still only about 8% of the overall cost, so that's not it. What happened is that for a lot of families with the rise of the dual-income household, child care and education expenses went from being a rounding error in most budgets to a big chunk of it. So the cost of child care and education jumped from 2% to 18%. But at the same time, the households 
you would expect are bringing in more money. Yes, that's true. And, and another interesting thing is, is, and this again shows the limitations of relying on averages, is that despite the huge jump in childcare costs, 45% of these families are spending nothing on childcare and education. So you can assume that there's a, there's a significant number of middle-income households that are just completely wiping out entire flood zones of their budgets to pay for daycare, and they're skewering the average, or the people paying nothing are skewering the average, depending right. on, on how you see it. Uh, you know, the, the 18% number, that comes out to about $44,000 for your lifetime costs of, of daycare. Now, in many urban centers, $44,000 will get you two, two and a half years of full-time daycare, and that's assuming pre-tax dollars that you can you can pay into a pre-tax fund. So, the, the real cost is actually probably much, much, much more. That was, for me, as a member of a dual-income household, the most alarming part of this whole report. I was surprised. One um, little point in the report was that it said annual expenditures on children generally increased with age of the child, which I don't understand because what you're saying, like the cost of daycare and child care is really the issue. And so I've been banking on, okay, once my kids are all out of preschool and done with our nanny will be free and clear. Of course, they'll be like, whatever. There'll be expenditures that I can't probably even imagine. But once they're all in public school, whew. (laughs) Right. I've I've been assuming the same thing. And I think it's because the people who aren't spending anything on childcare are skewing the entire average. I think you, we will feel that same kind of relief when our kids are in public school. You know, kids eat more, their nutrition ex- expenses are more, their clothing expenses are more, their transportation costs go up before they get a driver's license, assuming you can afford to buy them a car right. <laughs> or if they need a car. Um, but I think that is the, the, the child, the weird child care cost skewing that's happening in this study is what accounts for that disconnect. But um, we, we can still breathe a sigh of relief once our youngest children are five, for sure. So it's hard for me to even sort of know how to think about this number because a lo- the, the headline makes you gasp, $250,000, oh my God. And then also the way that it's been framed in a lot of coverage, which is, I've seen this line in a couple of of pieces, including in ours on Slate, um, that this 245000 is as much or more than the median cost of a house. Like, holy crap, it's going to cost as much of a house. But then when I think about it, like, should, I mean, that doesn't seem so crazy. Like, a, raising a child should, seems like it should cost more than a building. <laughs> I guess the only difference is that you can't mortgage your kid. I mean, right. maybe the Obama administration should introduce a mortgage plan for your kid. Yes, Jordan Weissman, um, our business writer, wrote on Slate. Um, he pointed out that $273,000 is the median price of a new home. And obviously, you get 30 years to pay that off, not 17. Right. And you don't have to pay for someone's college education <laughs> once your 30-year mortgage is up. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely spent some time last night with a calculator figuring out what is this per month? What is this per week? And it, it was reassuring to me to break it down like that. It was. Why? What did you... I mean, had, you because mean the numbers d- got so much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. But, it, it, but it's not... I mean, you're right that you can't, you can't mortgage a child and, and you, can't, you don't divide it out by 17 years. Like we're saying, it's, like it's, it's often like lumped into these, into these you know, five years when you have to pay whatever. I think we pay $5,000 a month in childcare costs oh every month. God. Yeah. <laughs> 
see, I, as a first-time parent-to-be, I am quite contentedly swimming around in this warm and pleasant soup of denial about so many things, about birth, about... I understand that there's this CIA military experiment on sleep deprivation that happens in the first six to eight weeks. <laughs> you know, I know Armageddon is coming, but I think, you know, the, the panic is being kept at bay by hormones and excitement and whatever. And the one monster in the attic that does, like, come downstairs and pierce my consciousness now at seven months pregnant is daycare, both finding the right kind of daycare and paying for it. Um you know, if if we're going to talk about daycare as a second mortgage, as sort of like a second home, I mean, that's what a lot of my friends anecdotally compare it to. It's like buying a second home in terms of the expense. You know, for most people, a second home is a huge luxury that they wouldn't even consider. Right. And, you know, for us, it's going to be a necessity. So, you know, anecdotally talking to friends about this, you know, I know people where one partner or other have shifted a few gears down and exited the workforce or go part-time for a few years to help cover childcare. But there are significant long-term knocks to your lifelong income and your lifelong professional opportunities if you do that. A fair amount of my friends have pulled back on retirement spending, or in some cases, they've just stopped contributing to a 401k entirely to cover childcare expenses in those early years. And you know, we know through the magic of compound interest that you're giving up tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. So that's an incredibly painful calculus. Um, and this is another troubling thing about this report, which the report actually acknowledges. There are so many very real, very empirical opportunity costs of having a child that the USDA just can't measure. And so the hard truth of the matter is that having a kid is actually probably a lot more expensive than this report even reveals. Did you think about money before deciding whether to get pregnant or not? Like, did you game out your financials? Oh, God, Was it a financial decision at all? Not for us either. Never. Not even having the third one. We never thought about, can we really afford this? I, I think... No. I mean, any ambivalence we ever had about when we would have a kid or, you know, where we wanted to be career-wise or or whatever didn't really come up all that much. It was more of an existential thing. You know, what kind of parents would we be and when would be the right time to, to do it just personally? And everyone always says, all parents talking to non-parents always say the same thing. And I'm sure I'll be saying this in the future. It'll all work out. You'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Look at all these people around you who are figuring it out. Um, but a lot of those people are in like <laughs> serious debt, don't have anything in their retirement accounts. We're one of those families who stopped contributing to our 401k okay. in, in order to pay for childcare. I'm very familiar with that. And it's scary. And we do, you know, we both make nice Amounts of money also there, you know, I can't I cannot imagine what lower income parents who work, you know, more than one job, how they do it. Yeah, I mean, the the median income in this country right now is 8% below what it was before the recession. And a lot of these costs, healthcare and childcare costs in particular, are outstripping inflation. And our incomes aren't even keeping up with inflation. So there are a lot of families who aren't even running in place. They're getting further and further behind as as fast as they're running. I'm sure in 18 years it will all be fixed. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Jessica, you'll stick around for your recommendations? Absolutely. And also our producer, Chris Waite, who has been producing the show since the very beginning, and this is his last episode, unless he comes back to, you know, fill in occasionally, he's going to recommend uh, with us. So, Chris, what's your recommendation? 
today I would like to recommend Dungeons and Dragons for kids and gaming in general. I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for the first time in my life since about February, and I found it incredibly delightful, and I've made great friends through it uh, suddenly, and the guy who runs our game also runs games for 12-year-olds as basically an after-school program. It got me thinking a lot about this, and I looked into what kind of programs are available, and almost every gaming store, at least in Brooklyn, offers after-school programs. Of course, Brooklyn is a magical place where the most obscure of interests can be provided for every age group, uh, so it might not be available any- everywhere. But it's really not the uh, sweaty guys chugging Mountain Dew in the basement game that I'm sure everybody stereotypically imagines it's basically a very loose system you can customize to be any kind of game that you want it's about uh collaborative storytelling it's about group decision making it's about very light role play of being a character imagining ways to get out of various situations uh you can find all sorts of different modules and depending on a kid's age to play at very like low levels of fantasy violence, if you're worried about that, up to like basically being in like Lord of the Rings and just imagining that you can be a hero and figuring out with your friends how to get through certain situations. So, and I also just think that in terms of like fostering a situation to kind of teach group decision making in a really fun way, it got me thinking that there aren't a lot of ways to do that. Uh, or ways that kids are taught really collaborative group decision-making. And it's a really essential skill, I think. And I think that a lot of people I see around me still struggle with it, and it would have been helpful to do a lot of more collaborative uh, group efforts, group problem-solving. Uh, I love that. Kid. I love that recommendation. And I also have always felt a sort of a hole in my, in my life. <laughs> I, I kind of wish I had been a and d kid. Were you? No, I know nothing about it, and it does feel like a hole in my cultural education, and apparently in my diplomatic and problem-solving yeah, community right. education as well. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you, guys. Jessica, what do you have? Um, my recommendation is going to double as a plea to all the smart children's publishers out there to make a really brilliant children's book affordable again. It's a short picture book called Godzilla Likes to Roar, and I bought it on eBay a couple years ago on a lark, and I think... It was probably the first thing I ever found and tucked away for a little person from the future. So it's an important artifact for me personally, and I I hope my kid enjoys it as much as I do. Um, The book is basically Godzilla's version of Goodnight Moon. (laughs) It's Godzilla and his friends hanging out on Monster Island, having a blast, and they have a picnic, and they eat coconuts, and eventually they go to sleep. That's the whole plot. Um, uh, It's really beautifully illustrated by a well-known fantasy and horror artist, Bob Eggleton. I hope I'm saying his name right. But Godzilla Likes to Roar is not really available in any practical sense. I think I was pretty lucky to pick it up on eBay for cheap. The cheapest version I can currently find on Amazon, a a new copy is $845. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) You can get a used version for $68. Um, You know, the U.S. DA report did not factor in the price of Godzilla Likes to Roar. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping that a publisher can make this wonderful book affordable again. And in the meantime, if it's okay with Allison, there's a, there's a Flickr set of pages from Godzilla Likes to Roar that we can link to on the Mom and Dad are Fighting show page. It is okay with me. That's awesome. great. Okay, my recommendation, I 
don't usually love to recommend Slate stuff, but I'm going to anyway because it kind of relates to the conversation that Jessica and I just had. Um, on Double X, the sec- one of the sections at Slate that I edit, Jessica Gross has started a series called Child Care Over There in which she interviews parents all over the world about how they do child care, how much it costs, how, you know, how, what the government involvement is, what the hours are, how also like the ex- different gender expectations of mothers and fathers in terms of child care. Um, our first one was last week uh, from a mom in Oslo, Norway, and I'm about to press publish on one from a, a mother in Australia. Um, an interesting tidbit from the Norway one was that um, in Norway, parents get a certain amount of days off to take care of their sick kids, and single parents actually get double the amount of days, which makes sense. It makes perfect yes, sense. Yes, very smart, Norway. So we read a lot about how other countries are doing it so much better than America, uh, but often just kind of like in a general statement in a longer piece or Hannah Rosen telling us that. But I really love <laughs> I love um, hearing from these parents directly. So it's a really fun series, Child Care over there. I'll link to it on our page. So that's our show. Please email us at momanddad, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to Chris Wade for engineering today and for producing this podcast since our very first episode. Chris, I will miss you. I know that Dan will miss you, even though he's not here to say it. He couldn't be bothered to call in, Dan. Uh, But really, it's been wonderful having you on the Mom and Dad Are Fighting team. Thanks to our new producer, Ann Hepperman, for editing today's episode. Uh, We're excited to have you. Thanks to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Slate Podcasts. Thank you to all my guests this week, Will Dobson, Stacia Brown, Dwayne Betts, and Jessica Winter. And thank you all for listening.